Welcome to Small World Big Problems, a podcast of the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. My name is Mahan Nama. Today, you will be listening to my interview with Ivan Nechaparenko on the Nagorno-Karabakh crisis. As you listen, please keep in mind that this episode was recorded a while back, specifically in October, which is great because you don't have to listen to it in my very sick voice. However, it does mean that it is very likely that the current situation could have changed from the time we recorded this episode. Our guest today is Ivan Nechaparenko. Ivan is a Russian writer and journalist. He has been a reporter with the New York Times since 2015, covering politics, economics, sports, and culture in Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and other former Soviet republics. On the 19th of September 2023, Azerbaijan launched what it called an anti-terrorist operation in Nagorno-Karabakh, an enclave in Azerbaijani territory that had a 95% ethnic Armenian population of approximately 120,000 people. Even though the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh is internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan, it has been mostly governed as a self-declared republic, the Republic of Arsak. The offensive operations were short-lived. Just over 24 hours after operations began, Karabakh authorities accepted the ceasefire proposal put forward by the Russian peacekeeping command in the region. Azerbaijan declared military victory, while Armenia accused the Azerbaijani government of pursuing a policy of ethnic cleansing. Could you please talk about the origins of the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh and what have been the primary causes for the enduring tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan? Well, of course, it's an ancient conflict that both Armenians and Azerbaijanis believe is rooted in their own very painful history of cohabitation together. These two peoples have lived uh, next to each other for decades and centuries in that very volatile part of the world. And uh, they were part of uh, various empires, uh, Persian Empire, the Russian Empire, which, uh, you know, kind of allowed them to coexist because they had uh, someone else, basically someone else to police their uh, mutual grievances. And they also were engaged in a lot of commerce. Um, so uh, for many years, for many centuries, these two nations have uh, left together. But at the end of 19, when the Soviet Union, sort of the last empire to discipline these two peoples from the outside, began to get weaker and weaker, these grievances, they came to the surface and eventually they have translated into an outright conflict with violence, with hundreds of thousands of people displaced, with uh, tens of thousands of people dead in the first war, and then more people died in the second war, and many other skirmishes uh, between the two nations. Um, other than the fall of the Soviet Union, as you've mentioned, what events or decisions can be ad- identified as pivotal moments or turning points in the conflict trajectory? Uh, I mean, of course, we can talk about like the big reasons behind it. 
this the fall of the Soviet Union, the waning of this big empires. And of course, like the both both sides trace uh, this history to different events. They say that the other side is guilty because, you know, uh, people were uh, Azerbaijanis, for instance, they say that while well, Armenians began to force people to flee uh, southern Armenia, southern, you know, Azerbaijanis had to go to Baku and then in Baku, Azerbaijanis from southern Armenia were met by Azerbaijanis that inflated, in, inflamed more uh, mutual grievances and that produced, uh, you know, a whole, what you can call pogroms in uh, near Baku in the, in the city of uh, Sumgait. So, uh, and, and then of course, there were many other instances like the actual massacres, the Hojali massacre or some other massacres that have been documented by rights groups. And you can really kind of go very deep into the weeds. And uh, the truth is that there were like big reasons and they led to this uh, specific uh, incidents for mutual hatred uh, really uh, transformed into violent events uh, where blood was shed and lives were lost and that produced this kind of contributed to that endless cycle of uh, mutual hatred uh, between the armenians and azerbaijanis well the Khojali massacre uh, is has been well documented by i think it was human rights watch i don't remember the numbers but in the hundreds of victims died uh, really, this conflict is probably, you know, we are now in the midst of a conflict in Israel and in a way it's it's similar. It's very hard to kind of justify anything. You know that, you know, both sides, they uh, hate each other and they and when you talk to Armenians, we talk to Azerbaijanis, uh, you cannot really contradict them because they will quote, you know, hundreds of other examples, how they mm -hmm. suffered, how their family members or relatives suffered or displaced or injured or killed this wars. Uh, so it's, it's really difficult to kind of uh, determine who is actually right and who is actually wrong. And at the same time, you know, as a journalist, I don't believe I can do much else here. Um, right now, the Nagorno-Karabakh area is fully under uh, Azerbaijan's control. And Azerbaijan has said that it will guarantee the rights and security of Karabakh Armenians in the same way and, uh, as any other ethnic minority group in Azerbaijan. It has also said that any individual who chooses not to accept Azerbaijan's proposal is free to leave Karabakh. Um, but given the level of mistrust that exists between Karabakh Armenians and Azerbaijanis, uh, and amid a pre-existing humanitarian crisis, uh, has been like a massive exodus in the region. Uh, and so given the significant migration from the region to Armenia, what do you think are the challenges that these refugees uh, face and how can they, how can these uh, challenges be tackled? You mean Armenians uh, who had to flee uh, Nagorno-Karabakh? Uh, well, of course, I spoke to many of them, and uh, most of them, I would say, had to um, flee very quickly. They only had, sometimes they had a day, sometimes had a, they had a few hours, sometimes they said they had only 15 minutes to pack up and leave their homes, their lives, uh, with very little prospect of going back. Um, to the place where they lived their whole lives, to the place where their 
uh, sisters had buried. Uh, of course, uh, for many, there will be a big problem of uh, integrating to in, in re-establishing their lives, uh, either in Armenia or elsewhere. Uh, some told me that they were thinking about going to Russia. Some said that they might go to the U.S. because they have relatives there. So, um, of course, this kind of uh, the problem of building a life somewhere else will loom large. And um, unfortunately, the Armenian state is not uh, wealthy to just, you know, flood it all with money. So to many people, and many of them were really living on subsistence farming, herding. Uh, for many of them, it would be a survival issue, of course. And hopefully, uh, national organizations, this instance will not just look away because, of course, there are many crises in the world. But I, I believe that, you know, this crisis is, is in need of more attention than it currently has. At SAIS, we do have uh, some Armenian students, which I spoke to, and one of them kind of discussed or described to me um, how the Azerbaijani army is um, raping women, uh, committing um, atrocities, basically, as the Armenians are leaving um, to go to Armenia. Could you confirm if these reports are true or not? Uh, unfortunately, I can't confirm because we had no access to uh, the areas that Armenians had to flee uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh. I heard many of the stories too. Okay. Uh, I know that there are rights groups uh, interviewing people about these things, uh, these incidents, potential incidents. Uh, uh, but it's it's been very hard to uh, verify anything unfortunately because uh, you know azerbaijan would not allow us to simply go there because it was a war zone mm -hmm. um, this region overall you know things are very close and very far away mm -hmm. you can you you, you can see uh, villages in nagorno-karabakh on the other side of the line but you cannot reach them the what we know, of course, for sure, is that the region has been blockaded for, effectively blockaded uh, for eight months. People really suffering from even malnutrition and lack of access to proper medical care. Uh, interviewed some people who, um, you know, who suffered from it uh, even before, because ICRC had. Uh, a way to evacuate some people while Nagorno-Karabakh was still blockaded. So I interviewed some of them and, you know, many suffered from very serious diseases, cancer, and they couldn't be treated in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. So they had to flee, had to leave. But of course, there's a lot of work still to be done about um, what really happened, especially in all those villages that are, you know, away from Stepanakert. Um, what happened to them? What happened to the Russian peacekeepers who died, why they died, because there are some reports that they were witnessing some human rights abuses and they were uh, killed by the Azerbaijani army. Uh, we don't have any confirmation, but we need to look further into those reports. So, so you mentioned two things that I want to discuss, the Russian peacekeepers and the nine-month blockade of the uh, Lachin Corridor. 
So let's discuss the blockade of the corridor first. Uh, offensive followed a nine-month blockade of the La- uh, Lachin Corridor, which is the only road linking the uh, enclave to Armenia. And in August 2023, the UN had already declared a humanitarian emergency in the region. Um, when the recent conflict broke out, um, a lot of um, states said that it came as a surprise. And many global powers said that it was a surprise, including the US. And they seemed unprepared for the swift development uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh. Why, why was the nine-month blockade imposed? And then why do you believe major powers, including the US, seemed unprepared for the swift uh, developments in, the, in Nagorno-Karabakh? Well, um, I think uh, the blockade was imposed by Azerbaijan in kind of a preparation to get all of Nagorno-Karabakh under its control. The blockade uh, happened in phases. Uh, at the beginning, there were Azerbaijani activists, so-called activists, who were effectively blockading it. And then later, uh, Azerbaijan installed a point on the border between Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh. The checkpoint said, uh, you know, welcome to Azerbaijan. So it was basically already when the checkpoint was installed, I think it was already clear that uh, the time was coming. Main question was basically uh, how violent it will be, how long it will take, and what will happen to Armenians, what they what will they do to Armenians. Uh, the second part of your question, uh, why the international community looked the other way, I think um, this is a perfect example how uh, that's the international community has become increasingly fractured kind of uh, local you can say you know local conflicts uh, because it's a conflict between two relatively uh, small states uh, when you think about it in a world term so Azerbaijan and Armenia and there are bigger players involved. And my belief is that um, because the bigger players are basically at war with each other by bigger players I mean Russia and the West, and following the invasion of Ukraine and the whole war over Ukraine, what happened was that basically uh, Russia and the West began to compete everywhere. The conflict over Ukraine kind of spilled into uh, the conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh, and they began to pull each other over Nagorno-Karabakh, just as they do in Ukraine. And as a consequence, you know, it's a proxy situation. So basically, it's the Kar- Karabakh Armenians who suffered. I don't think it's neglect; it's just paralysis. They knew, uh, of course, they have. You know, the EU has a monitoring mission along mm-hmm. the Armenian-Azerbaijani border. Russia, of course, has peacekeepers in Nagorno-Karabakh still, even as we speak. So of course they knew, uh, it wasn't in the media, but they knew, but they just couldn't do anything. So part of why the Russian peacekeepers were not as effective is because Russia is involved in the Ukraine war. But ever since they were deployed uh, in late 2020 uh, to maintain what has been a fragile peace, how has Russia's role as mediator and peacekeeper influenced uh, the dynamics of the conflict? 
Well, it's very hard to evaluate it because it's very hard to kind of imagine what would happen if they weren't there. Uh, because, uh, you know, of course, Armenians are extremely upset that the peacekeepers didn't prevent this outcome. There's a big question whether they could prevent it. Uh, I think that before the war in Ukraine, I think that before the war, the Kremlin was interested in basically freezing the situation for the time being and um, throwing it at uh, future generations to uh, resolve and for Russian peacekeepers to be there um, as long as possible. But then when the wars happened, they couldn't keep that balance between Azerbaijan and Armenia. They really needed Azerbaijan, they need, really needed Turkey because of the trade issues Russia has with the West um, because of sanctions and uh, Armenia in its own right have a new reform-minded um, prime minister who was um, you know trying to diversify Armenia's uh, international posture all those factors combined um, you know they changed the situation on the ground so because the situation post 2020 post the trilateral agreement and before february 2022 was one and after february 2022 was different and the framework uh, which the agreement was made between armenia and azerbaijan and russia that stopped the 2020 war that framework was gone and then the new framework the old agreement basically didn't hold um, so the peacekeepers, I think they play a positive role in, in evacuation process because it wasn't just the Azerbaijani army just assaulting Armenians and basically trapping them, them keeping them as hostages. Uh, more than 100,000 Armenians could uh, flee. We can say they were forced to flee. We can say that uh, they had to flee, but they, they did leave. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh in fear. So, uh, judging by the standards of that uh, conflict, we could have expected worse things to happen. And uh, when the Azerbaijan attacked and basically uh, captured the all the communication lines within uh, the remaining Armenian-held territory in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, there were a few days when there were, it wasn't clear what will happen to Armenians there. And I remember well how uh, there were many people on the Republic Square in Yerevan and some people came to the border and they were looking for their relatives and friends on the other side of the border and they couldn't reach them because there was no phone connection and they were extremely anxious about what would happen to them. Because, of course, uh, basically the whole male population fought against the Azerbaijanis. And they could, the Azerbaijanis could easily claim that, you know, that uh, need to be prosecuted. And there were all these rumors about filtration camps uh, being built in Akdam, the town to Nagorno-Karabakh. It wasn't the best scenario, but it probably wasn't the worst scenario, too. And a lot of it is, you know, actually due to the peacekeepers. Um, I want to circle back to, um, or I want to talk about the Arsakh Republic, 
So in the first war, the Armenians were able to gain control of most of the territory. In the second war, they lost a lot of it. And then this time, they weren't even able to withstand like, a fight. Um, what led to the rapid downfall of the Republic of Arsakh, in your opinion, um, given its lengthy existence? And why were they unable to even fight this time? Uh, well, Azerbaijan just has a, a huge military superiority and uh, by themselves and with Armenia basically telling them that they should protect themselves uh, by themselves. Uh, they didn't stand any chance. It would just be a, a bloodbath if they did. And dismantling themselves, uh, they also had little choice because Azerbaijan, its army was in control of internal communications inside Nagorno-Karabakh uh, between villages and towns. States and its structures basically could not really function. Uh, I, I was in a way surprised that they just they just dismantled themselves uh, instead of declaring that they're going to leave the territory and maybe have some kind of a representation in exile, which would, you know, kind of give it a way to uh, prolong some kind of an existence, um, uh, given how people spoke that this is you know, ancient Armenian land and how they would never leave it. It was, it was a bit surprising. But... Um, do you think um, the fact that a lot of young people have left to pursue like better lives is also a factor or no? You mean from uh, Nagorno-Karabakh? Mm -hmm. uh, well, you cannot really judge them for that. So even if these people stayed, like what would they do now? Mm -hmm. um, the population of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh was, you know, a little bit more than 100,000, maybe 120,000. And the population of Azerbaijan is 10 million. And Azerbaijan is a much bigger economy per capita than Nagorno-Karabakh or Armenia because of its oil and gas wealth. Yeah. Uh, and it's a much more consolidated, of course, you can say authoritarian uh, regime, which is able to extract things in a much more easier way than Armenia, which more is more fluid, more uh, pluralistic, uh, but also more prone to crisis. Mm -hmm. um, let's move on to talk uh, a bit about the geopolitical context. So while Nagorno-Karabakh might be viewed by some as a localized issue, its implications uh, seem to stretch beyond its borders. Can you shed light on the, its broader geopolitical significance or sim uh, symbolism that, might, that make it north noteworthy on the global stage beyond the undeniable human tragedy? Why should the international community and our listeners be concerned about the developments in Nagorno-Karabakh? What, in your opinion, are the larger stakes at play? Well, of course, Caucasus has always been at the crossroads of uh, various civilizations, empire. It's a very strategic piece of land, basically a bridge between uh, Asia, Europe, and what we call now the global south. Mm -hmm. uh, and Nagorno-Karabakh, in a way, was kind of the frontier. The Armenians call it the frontier of the Christian world. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of the areas where 
people always traded and you know the, where all the cultures mingled with each other uh the the transformation of that region from being very kind of multicultural and a very multicultural space where now it will probably be kind of divided into uh, more 19th century type of spheres of influence where you have the Turkish sphere of influence, you have uh, Russia trying to uh, stay relevant uh, and you have all these countries in between. It's the lack of agreement, basically it signifies the lack of agreement and increased fragmentation uh, of the world. So we have this much more mono-ethnic uh, nation states and uh, what happens when you move toward mono-ethnicity is that you're much more prone to conflict in a way because you know you, you think that you represent one state and then there's this other state and you, you have all those historic grievances so of course like it's it's not the end of it Azerbaijan makes no secret of its um, of its ambitions uh, for Armenia and of course uh, it has wider implications for uh, Russia's role uh, for Armenia's um, traditional uh, reliance on Russia as its security guarantor it uh, pushes Azerbaijan even closer to Turkey you know affects Georgia in a way because um, it seems that Russia is much more eager to court Georgia because Georgia's stakes are up for Russia since it's uh, losing Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan is, um, is, is just more sustainable. So, um, yeah, of course, the implications are very wide, but like the reasons for it, like it's, it's uh, Karabakh fell victim to this whole fragmentation of the world. And it kind of symbolizes it at the same time. Um, let's talk about the Zangzur, uh, which is a region that has become so explosive due to the developments over the past few weeks um, that it could now potentially threaten to trigger a much broader uh, conflict. Um, just for our listeners, the Zangzur corridor is a narrow strip of land inside Armenia known as the Sunni. Shunik Oblast, Shunik Oblast, thank you, between metropolitan Azerbaijan and Azerbaijan's non-contagious autonomy of Nakhchivan. So given the recent changes in Nagorno-Karabakh, how has Azerbaijan's reclamation of the region impacted the strategic importance of the Zangzur corridor? And in your opinion, are there any indications that the situation may be rapidly moving in the direction of force? Well, I mean, as as I said before, we don't know, like, uh, one conspiracy theory says that basically it was the other way around, that Russia is and Turkey are so interested in this uh, logistics corridor that they basically traded, Moscow in particular, traded Arbach for it because, you know, because this corridor represents um, a very old trade route that linked Moscow with Turkey by railway. So mm -hmm. if you look on the map, then you'll see that um, you used to, like a train from Russia to Iran, for instance, 
used to run through that corridor. Uh, it would go to from Russia to Azerbaijan, then go to uh, Armenia through that corridor, then back to Nahichivan, and then down to Tehran. And then also there was a route to uh, Turkey as well. Um, mm. So of course, like it's 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 too you know, um You can claim that uh, the whole thing happened because of it, because it's now it's really important for Russia to have as many trade uh, links, uh, especially with Turkey, as possible. Again, it's it's the fact that Russia and the West collided that made it so important, I, I believe, because Russia really needs all these trade links. It's building a railway in Iran, going to be a railway to Turkey. And if you look on the map, there's this huge Eurasian landmass of Russia, which is now sealed off from all its natural trading partners, which are in Europe. And so, of course, if, when you have pressure there, it has to move somewhere, move south. And uh, it's likely that Armenia is, is unfortunately a victim of that process. Mm -hmm. um, so given the changing strategic, operational, tactical, and even legal situation um, in Nagorno-Karabakh and potentially um, the Zangizur area. Um, what do you foresee as potential resolutions or next steps for the region? Um, it's it's very hard to speculate, of course, because things can move very fast and very slowly in this mm -hmm. part of the world. We know that, for instance, uh, the Karabakh um, conflict was had been frozen for many years, for you know more than basically more than 20 years. Uh, so it, a lot will depend on what happens in Ukraine, uh, whether there's any kind of a ceasefire in Ukraine, uh, because Ukraine is where the interests of all these major powers, Russia, Turkey, the West, are colliding directly. And... Um, uh, we talk about the part of the world where this is also happening, but it's basically a residue of the bigger conflict. So we need to see what happens with the big uh, war in Ukraine. Because I think if uh, tensions will begin to ease, at least, like we will, re we will know that we've reached the peak of tensions at this stage and between Russia and the West, and you know there will be some kind of a normalization. By, by normalization, I don't mean that things will go back to normal as before the war, but still, um, I think it will be felt in Armenia and maybe there won't be as much of a zero-sum game type of uh, approach as we've seen before. So um, for our last uh, question, you did mention in the beginning of the uh, interview that more attention should be given to this issue from the international community. Like, what should the international community do more for this um, conflict? Uh, well, of course, uh, I think um, it is too late to kind of pressure for a conflict resolution in the sense of, you know, pressuring Azerbaijan to do something. But uh, you can at least uh, try to make Azerbaijan more transparent and allow Azerbaijan to, uh, I think they allowed some UN uh, monitors to enter, but uh, 
you know, at least allow point international observers to see what's happening in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, people, Armenians, had personal possessions, property. Realistically, I don't think it would be possible for them to live there, to go back, but at least they should be able to, you know, at least visit their relatives' graves, uh, at least get their possessions. I, and I think it's really in Azerbaijan's interest to mitigate it as, as, as much as possible from a humanitarian standpoint, the, the problem with all the displaced people. This is not the first time that we see thousands of displaced, hundreds of thousands of displaced people. So, uh, I think Armenia would require a lot of help with uh, also psychological help of these people. Many of them, they need psychological help. Young people too, you mentioned, and um, they, they need work, they need shelter, they need basic things, uh, and they need to, to feel that someone cares about them because they're really, like we talk about the things, you know, geopolitics, uh, all these countries, why it happened, why it was inevitable or it wasn't inevitable. But there are more than 100,000 people who basically left their lives there and they require help uh, right now. All right. Uh, so we've come to the end of the interview. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, it was a very insightful and constructive conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you again to Ivan for coming on the show. And thank you all for listening. If you want to send us any feedback or episode ideas, please reach out over email at saistrategypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is S-A-I-S strategypodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to our podcast so you get updated whenever we come out with a new episode. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Thank you for listening.